Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Well, I'm the king of the swingers. Oh, the jungle VIP. I am just a normal monkey. (laughs) Uh, Point of order, King Louis was an orangutan, part of the great ape family, not a monkey. Yes, one of my relatives. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uncle Louis. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Feels like ages since we've spoken. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's been positively minutes. (laughs) Indeed, it has. Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. We are concluding the fourth class in our electro season by going through an indie rock and roll album, which isn't an electro album. So, you know, (laughs) blame Kev for that. (laughs) Kev, what are we doing? So this week we will be doing the debut album by Claxons, which is Myths of the Near Future. Came under the new rave guys um, and was incorrectly described as electropop. Indeed. But yeah, that's it. We're going through Claxons today. We went through Hot Chips' second album, The Warning, last week. I mean, what we can, what we can say is that the two of them were part of a an indie dance renaissance Mm -hmm. so in some areas got categorized as new rave and all this kind of thing it's just that there were some bands who decided to put a beat to an indie song really yes no the clash makes sense as you said it was part of a movement in the mid-2000s and so yeah i'm looking forward to getting into this today yeah it's a it's a good one but obviously before that we have our our regular feature, Video Kill the Radio Star. And this week, it is your choice. It is my choice. And I have chosen the video for Hard Drive Gold, which is the latest single by Alt-J. It's the third single from their forthcoming album, The Dream, which will be released, if I've got my calendar right, as this show is released, it will be released tomorrow on the 11th of February the album but the single is out now as we record uh the video is directed by the frontman of alt j joe newman and his partner darcy wallace the song itself hard drive gold is a wry critique of the current fascination with pyramids sorry with cryptocurrencies (laughs) (laughs) but the video's got absolutely nothing to do with that fucking wild (laughs) Well, Kev, would you like to describe the video, please? So at the inception of the video, there is a radio announcement, which is essentially the three-minute warning mm-hmm. that a nuclear attack is imminent. And the protagonist within the video decides at that point to go into the garage and pick up a pole vault. Well, hang on. Before she goes to... So that is uh, Northern Irish pole vaulter Ella McCartney. Before she does go to pick up the vaulting pole, however, she goes to the mantelpiece. She's been looking at the picture of her her dead mother. She goes to the mantelpiece. She picks up an urn of what I assume is her dead mother's ashes. And then she pours her dead mother's ashes into her trainees. (laughs) Why? Why? Obviously looking for that extra bounce. (laughs) Why why didn't Reebok Pump think of that? (laughs) 
Nike, who needs a plastic fucking bubble when you can have Nana in the in your trainers? Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, she grabs a vaulting pole. Please continue. I interrupted you rudely. And then she legs it through an estate where various people are panicking, obviously because the three-minute warning has, has occurred. And yeah, she's just fucking legging it with this pole as quickly as she can to get to the nearest athletics track. At which point, I pass over to you. So at which point, she attempts one final vault before... So we see, as she's doing this run-up, as Kev said, we see various scenes of panic. I love the suburban mother taking her lad who's playing footy outside into the conservatory. That's going to help, love. <laughs> <laughs> but we also see helicopter gunships flying around. We see the missile itself heading towards it, its target. And as we said, at this point, Ellie McCartney, she goes for one final jump. The video goes into slow motion. I mean, it's a hell of a great slow motion tracking shot, yeah. by the way. She makes the jump, and then the video ends with the impact, and she is consumed by the blast wave. And, yeah, it's a fucking wild video, it's a new video. We don't often choose new videos, but I saw it. It's like this is great. I've got to put this on. So yeah, like I, re- I really like the song and the video's fucking nuts. And it immediately got me thinking. Like I've heard the three minute warning. I'm not gonna go do a pole vault. <laughs> do you know what? Like that's not what I'm gonna gonna go and do. I quite like because like why not? You know, your mum's dead. You're about to die. Fuck it. Why not? The only thing that concerns me. So it's at a three-minute warning, okay? Let's break it down a bit. So she's legging it through the estate with the pole raised as if she's ready to jump. Yeah. As if she's ready to jump. I know it's got to be quite cumbersome to carry, okay? But as if she's ready to jump, right? But then when she gets to the track, we see her. She's taken her trackie off, and she's stood at the end of the, the run-up, like, ready to start. I'm like, A, you've been knackered. B, how do you know you've got time to take your trackie off? What happens if you're taking your trackie off? Oh, fuck, I'm dead. (laughs) And C, again, why did you pour your dead mother's ashes into your fucking shoes? Extra bounce. (laughs) I think there's some great shots in this video. As I say, the tracking shot of the jump. Uh, A, it makes you realise just how fucking difficult pole vault is. Christ. With that, I'd always thought that Sergei Bubka <laughs> was fucking great. Yeah, that's true. Fair play. It, I, I really like it. I, if that is really Joe Newman's debut, then fair play to you, lad, because that's a really, really good video. So all I'll say, if if there's an athletics event that I'm, I'm going to do just before an atomic bomb's going off, I'm either doing javelin or triple jump. Because, <laughs> you know... Yeah, but I'm guessing she is a pole vaulter. Since she's got a vaulting pole in her fucking garage. Don't matter. <laughs> I've never trained for this event before. Don't matter. <laughs> try the triple jump. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. you're not going to get to try it. Yeah, but imagine imagine you foul. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> fucking plasticine wanker. <laughs> you know I was so in. <laughs> But yeah, as ever, we'll tweet that out. It's a really, really good video. I like Alt J. I'm looking forward to the new album. Uh, it's a really good song, really good video. Yeah, it's it's nuts, but I like it. It's really good. Mm. 
Indeed, and I say the song clearly taking the piss out of people who want to invest in Ponzi schemes. So, you know, fair play. Of which there are many. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, okay, but that is Video Killed the Radio Star. So, Kevin, please could you lead us through Myths of the Near Future by Claxons? Okay, so Myths of the Near Future is the debut album by Claxons. It was released on the 29th of January 2007 through Polydor Records. Now, Claxons themselves were made up of uh, Jamie Reynolds, James Wrighton, and Simon Taylor. So the band itself were uh, formed in London after meeting through Jamie Reynolds' girlfriend. And the, ba- the band sort of started started performing around sort of the early 2000s, 2005 and that. And at the, the earliest guys, they performed under Claxons, parentheses, not Centaurs, close parentheses, um, which was inspired by Filippo Tomisi Marinetti's futurist text, The Futurist Manifesto, and various elements of futurist literature. That's going to be a theme we revisit quite a lot. Well, like the thing is, is that they are very much a literate band. So mm. the album itself, Myths of the Near Future, is taken from a J.G. Ballard text. Yeah. So, you know, they are not a band that are scared to hide their intellectual kudos, really. Indeed they aren't. Just on the formation of the band, may I read from a Polydor press release to promote the album? Oh, I bet this is terrible. <clears throat> Jamie Reynolds grew up in Bournemouth and Southampton. By age 12, he was already drinking and smoking weed, and by 13, oh, hanging out with lads five years older. A group of them asked him to be bassist in their nascent indie band, Thermal, and a few bass lessons later, Jamie's band was supporting heavy hitters of the time, such as Manson and Heavy Stereo. I mean, that's the only time Heavy Stereo, Gem Archer's band, has ever been referred to <laughs> as heavy hitters. But okay. The big break never came, though. When they went to record Thermal's breakthrough single, they discovered the lead singer couldn't sing and the band split up. I mean, yeah, that's going to do it for you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not, it's not going to help. Jamie was gutted and threw himself into partying. He studied philosophy at college, but his heart wasn't in it and he dropped out, spending the next eight years working in record shops and, I quote, giving people hassle for buying records I thought weren't cool. Hmm. Although, as as is very well known in Liverpool, that it was a rite of passage in the 80s before he um, achieved success in Dead or Alive, that Pete Burns just gave people loads of shit if you went into probe records. <laughs> Indeed, that's true. Back to the press release. Like Quentin Tarantino, the video oh, store God. clerk who dreamed big, however, Jamie spent these years plotting, drinking in musical knowledge and planning. Things came together spectacularly when he moved to London and was made redundant. He spent his redundancy money on studio kit and hooked up with Simon to form a group called Claxons. Simon Taylor grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon. Although he wasn't into indie music, he would listen to Dance Nation compilations and go to youth club Happy Hardcore Discos. He asked James, who was in the year below him at school, to teach him guitar. Then he headed off to Fine Art at Nottingham, Nottingham University. It was there he embraced the jagged sounds of Joseph Kay and the Fire Engines and made drunken late-night plans to form a band with the boyfriend of one of his housemates, one Jamie Reynolds, as you said. 
James Wrighton, meanwhile, worked every summer on the boats in Stratford-upon-Avon, but was into music early because his dad's a musician. He went to Reading Festival at 10 and saw Oasis at Nebworth, aged 13. He enjoyed everything from Pantera to Radiohead, <laughs> but after studying history at Cardiff University, he disappeared to Madrid to teach English and explore these great weird techno clubs. <clears throat> Last bit. In late 2005, his old pal Simon persuaded him to come back from his everlasting gap year and join Claxons. The chemistry of the three was immediate. Fucking hell. I, I, I apologise if I sounded somewhat sarcastic when reading that, but fucking hell. So, like, he was cool from the age of 13 and he hung out with older kids and he was smoking the drugs, you know, just like all the cool kids do. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, Claxons begin to get a bit of buzz about them. Um, they played at the Reading Leeds Festival. Uh, their fans were sounding Claxons and also had glow sticks, which they waved between songs. They were hailed as the godfathers of New Rave. They said themselves, so in the interview with The Guardian that Tim talks about, so Simon says, um, a lot of bands complain about being pigeonholed, but we built our own pigeonhole and then uh, flew out the nest. So Jamie said, we fled the nest. I don't re- regret coining that term, though it's great that as it started as an in-joke and became a minor youth subculture. Some scenes are only named to link certain bands together, Britpop, for example. But this one started with a name, and bands are actually forming to fit into it. I've got all sorts of problems with that. Yeah, it's not a scene. It's just a term that either you or the NME or whoever decided was a thing to term what you were doing Mm -hmm. and like so there's there's bands like css who are linked with this new like their stuff doesn't sound anything like rave at all it's just indie dance music well new young pony club were part of the new rave scene and okay firstly if you ever listened to clint boone on xfm back in the day as i did my first introduction to new young pony club was through that show and genuinely genuinely for quite a while i thought they were called neil young pony club because the way clint boone pronounced it i mean i would be fine listening to a band called neil young pony club (laughs) but not on spotify also can yeah well exactly kudos to you neil young for taking a stand against vaccine pricks indeed but yeah the whole new rave well i'm gonna be honest I'd forgotten it was even a term until researching this clash. That's how nonsense it seemed to me at the time. But, I mean, I suppose it's the problem. When, so, like, the Britpop thing. Mm. And we've talked about this. we talked about this before. So, Pulp are lumped in with Britpop. And it's, yes, that it's, they were a British popular music band. But what Jarvis Cocker was doing is was very different from anything that... Oasis and Blur were doing. They just happened to be doing it at the same time. It was not a homogenous movement. No. It was various different bands coming to fruition at one point of time. Many of whom would go and drink in the Camden Mixer, as we've said. Yeah, with the journalists who came up with yeah. the term. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I, I, I just want to um, talk a little bit if I may, about Claxon's influence in terms of dance music Mm -hmm. and and rave music. So the debut single, Gravity's Rainbow, was released uh, through independent label Angular Records in March of 2006. It was only 500 copies, 7-inch vinyl. 
And the B-side to that was a cover of the classic rave track by Kicks Like a Mule, The Bouncer. Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Which, again, 12-year-old me thought, your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. It's like, what's wrong with people called Dan? (laughs) Dan. Dan. (laughs) Well, yeah. But, okay, so, so in an interview with the enemy in 2007, Jamie Reynolds spoke about that and his fascination with that culture. He said it all seemed so alien and unobtainable. There were people with all these strange clothes and parties going on, but I was too young to take part in it all. Once my mum let me play this acid house compilation in the car stereo. After about 30 seconds, she threw it out the window. I thought, you know what? This is fucking great. And so that influence obviously stayed with him into mm-hmm. into the sounds they were creating with klaxons. Yeah. So there's not a huge amount available online about the the kind of recording process. No. What, what we what we can say is that so myths of the near future was a concept album about the band's fantasy vision of the future, and as we say, it takes it takes its title from a J.G. Ballard text. And throughout the album, there are literary references. Which do you know what? Fair play. Like I'm all, I'm all right with that. Okay. Having a bit of a, a literary reference to your music. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm guessing you're not. We'll get to it. Okay. So do you have anything else to say about the background? Because it, it is quite difficult, really, to kind of talk about it. Yeah, there's not a great deal in terms of the background. So they'd released a few singles through independent labels, very similar to what we talked about last week with Hot Chip. Uh, so Atlantis to Interzone was another one that was released independently through Miroc Records. They were getting a lot of airplay through the likes of Steve Lamarck. He had them do a session at uh, Made Avail on the evening session. Joe Wiley, Zane Lowe, they would also play in their stuff on their Radio 1 shows. They signed to Polydor. Their first single on Polydor was Magic in October of 2006. That charted, got to the top 30 in the UK. And then just before the album got released in January of 07, they released Golden Scans, which peaked at number seven. Did all right. Yeah, exactly. So through that underground buzz and getting their music out to influential journalists and influential DJs, in the same way to we talked about with The Strokes, to be fair, a, a while back, they created mm-hmm. that buzz for themselves and the world was very much ready to hear a Claxons album. But no, I don't have anything more about the recording process, etc. So uh, I'm good to go. Okay, so um, how did you first come across uh, the album? Okay, so whilst I am very familiar with some of the tracks on this album, particularly the singles, this is the first time I've ever listened to the whole album, is Research in This Clash. In fact, to be honest, I have avoided listening to a Claxons album until now. So first listen for me. How about you? So completely the same. I had heard the singles, but I had never listened to the album. So this was this was a a new one on me. Okay, is that a first for Album Clash? I think this is the first time that we've both like gone in as album virgins. <laughs> well, fair play, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, the Virgin Connie Swales. <laughs> Niche, wow. <laughs> Talk about the artwork, Kev, because I've got no fucking idea what it's about. Okay, I have no idea who did it. No. Because I can't get any information on it. It's a collage of various pictures. I mean, 
it's quite a hard one to describe, really. So, yeah, you've got the album title spelled out in, in coloured tiles, which are set up to look like a crossword puzzle. Although, if it is a crossword puzzle, I've got some issues with it because I'd love to know what the clues were for the down words, which spell out <laughs> Hatef, Shao, and Ert. No idea what they are. Yurt. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, and then in that collage, you've got like a stained glass rose window. You've got waterfalls, some mountains. You've got Westminster Abbey. You've got, I forget the name of it, but that temple in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of what I would say, and again, this comes into the futurism theme. There's a lot of Illuminati imagery in there, pyramids, all-seeing eye, etc. Well, and obviously, as we will go into, there's like Alistair Crowley stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of various different references throughout this album. Yeah, there are. Um, so, well, we've we've had two quite odd album covers, but for different reasons. Which one do you think is best? I would say the one that I can remember better is the Hot Chip album. Agreed. Yeah, I don't think either of them is brilliant, but this is a bit of a hodgepodge. It's quite exhausting actually looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. You go with exhausting. I went with hodgepodge. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. A ho- uh, hot Chip wins the uh, album art clash. I would even say, like, because the font is quite handwritten on this, it's not even good font either, you know. No. The, the, we are not having good font, no. font chat here. We are not indeed. Uh, but yeah, okay. I've got nothing else about the album. As you said, it's very hard to find anything about it. It's. Uh... Yeah. I, d- I don't even know who put it together. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't even get that. Exactly. So. Credit to the artist who did it. Yep. Okay, so we open the album with two receivers. Hmm. So, what do you think? I quite like this. It's 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 a really interesting start. So, I, what I would say right from the off is that you can hear how they're trying to blend a, a dance ethos with a, mm-hmm. a with a with a traditional rock style. The way the drum beat builds in from the start and then you've got the piano and the synth parts come in then the vocal harmonies yeah it's got a massive beat it's not too bombastic it's got a good bass line there's some nice melodies in there if i had a criticism about it it would be that towards the end it gets a bit repetitive i don't understand why it's the best part of five minutes long i think if it was a slick three minutes i'd be a lot more fond of it but on the whole, I quite like it. Okay, I really like it. It's a really exciting, urgent opening. Like, so the synth part and that has a, it gives it a kind of really dark undertone to it, um, to the music, slightly unsettling. It's also quite cinematic as well. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why a lot of their stuff was used in particularly like skins and that kind of thing at yeah. the time does lend itself to a montage. So glad you mentioned skins in association with the Claxons, by the way. <laughs> well, because because they, they are really synonymous. <laughs> Fucking is right, they are. <laughs> yeah, they are they are redolent of a particular time and place. Although, like as as we we have personally discussed and we, like I'll say on the pod. I'm sorry, the vast majority of people, their sixth form experience was not skins. It was the in-betweeners. Absolutely fucking right it was. <laughs> now, there is a conversation to be had, and we're not going to have it today, around how well the in-betweeners have stood the test of time in terms of its 
overt sexism and misogyny. Okay, I'm not having that conversation today. The point Kev's making is exactly right, is that for most certainly lads of our generation and subsequent generations, as it would seem, yeah, that's your experience of being between the ages of 16 and 18. It's not hedonism and drug taking. It's fucking awkward, furtive feeling under the covers, trying to fucking score weed at your first gig. Absolutely all that. Although I can honestly say I've never shot myself in an exam. <laughs> uh, but yes, skins could fuck right off and get all the way in the bin. So for, for me, I think two receivers is a really, really great opener personally I, I like it I, I whilst I talked about the repetitiveness of it that in itself is a dance music trope so I get it it could be a bit shorter for me I like it in terms of now it's really hard on a lot of these songs to actually figure out what they're about because yeah we've I've spoken before about my fondness for the use of metaphor and some abstract concepts mm-hmm. in lyrics what I would say, fellas, is it'd be nice if you could just give us at least some fucking clue about what the song is about. But, you know, <laughs> is this about impending nuclear holocaust? No, no, I can see where that's coming from. And particularly musically as well, it gives you that kind of, as I, as I said when I was t- describing it, that it does make you unsettled. It does. And I just want to I just want to explain lyrically how I've deduced that. Krill edible oceans at their feet... A troublesome troop out on safari. A lullaby holds their drones in sleep. For tattering clearly indiscreet, five fallible flags in hypersonic are told to stay nearly out of reach. Well, to me, though, you could easily interpret that as being about a fleet of nuclear submarines uh, mm-hmm. about to launch their hypersonic missiles. I, I don't know, but it seems plausible to me. And as you said... With the way it sounds, the the alertiveness of it, if you like. I don't think that's a word, but it is now because I just said it. The drama. Thank you. No, alertiveness is better. (laughs) 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 It's plausible. That's all I'm going to say. So, I I don't know. I like it. Uh, It's a good start. Okay. So, we then move on to uh, the second track on the album, Atlantis to Interzone. It references, obviously, the mythical lost city of Atlantis and a short story collection, Interzone, by William S. Burroughs, which is itself Burroughs' concept of a metaphorical stateless city. Hmm. Okay. In October 2011, the NME placed it at 125 on its list of 150 best tracks of the past 15 years. Which... (laughs) It's a very particular list. 2011? (laughs) Like... Yeah, we're going to go... So we will only go back to 1996. Such a weird thing, like such an enemy thing say, today. It's the enemy. So this is another one that's been used on a lot of video game soundtracks. It was used on Pro Evolution Sucker 2010. Oh, boy, it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it was. And Need for Speed Pro Street. Uh, it was a single, as I mentioned earlier. It was released independently through the Miroc label. And so you talked about referencing the mythical city of Atlantis in the title. That, to me, the, the references to Atlantis and Poseidon come across in the lyrics. So, hurry, mighty ocean rising fast. A big man with a plan has got a storm coming, monster coming. What do you think of it? So, this is much more in keeping with that kind of, if you believe that there was a new rave movement. It, it definitely fits more with that. But it's not an electro song at all. It's very indie accessible with a kind of punk chorus to it. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's a good mashup between indie and dance more than anything else. I do like it. I think one thing that you can certainly say about Claxons, you may not particularly like their stuff, but they do like an urgent opening to their songs. Yeah, I think you're right there. So it starts with the sirens and the vocal samples and bass line that could be lifted from a Snap song from 1992. <laughs> so really early 90s dance influence to start with. But then, yeah, it goes all scar punk metal for the chorus. Like, why am I listening to an automatic song when it gets to the chorus? <laughs> Seriously. I don't know what to think of this. I, don't, I do not know what I think of this tune. There are elements I like, particularly in the verse. I think it's very clear on this where they're trying to blend those rave influences with a, with contemporary rock music. Mm-hmm. But I just, I'm not sure the verse and the chorus blend together. If I'm honest, it feels like a bit of a cut and shut of two different songs that they were struggling to finish and they just said, oh, fuck it, stick them together. Okay, I, I don't necessarily agree, but I think there's a there's an argument to be made for that. I don't know. I don't dislike it, but... I don't really like it at the same time. It, I'm I, There are elements I like. I just don't think it works as a collective. Okay. So then we move on to the um, phenomenally uh, successful Golden Scans, which really is the, the song that... This is the song that established them, really. So it reached number 16 on download sales alone and eventually reached number 7 after the CD release. So, you know, it it did very well. Well, it sold over 600,000 copies and was certified platinum in the UK, so it did extremely well. And it was also a minor hit in Belgium, <laughs> charting on the ultra-tip charts of both Flanders and Wallonia. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's, it brought the disparate yeah. elements of Belgium together. One could almost say that the Claxons are almost like Bill and Ted. God gave rock and roll to you. <laughs> um, it is apparently named after a stage lamp, the Golden Scan 4, which is used in a lot of clubs and, and party venues. So what do you think? I mean, I said on uh, Atlantis to Winter Zone, I didn't know what I thought of it. I know exactly what I think about this song, and it's nothing good. Oh God, right from the start, the it just fucking make my skin crawl. All right, so it's a deliberate ploy to make a pop record. And they said that themselves. Fine. And to be fair, given the success of it, it's a really successful strategy. So fine. But that doesn't mean I have to like it. It's repetitive. I just, I don't like the vocals. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. It's just got nothing for me. Don't like it at all. Okay, so we have a clash. Okay. I think it's got a really good simple hook, and but this is the key to it. Either that hook gets you at the start or it doesn't. And for you, it very much didn't. Turned for me, me it did. So I thought it was a really good pop song that works really well. But I do accept that if you don't, if you don't take that hook, you're not going to get it. So there's a few things, well... Yeah, absolutely right. And this is a matter of opinion and a matter of, you know, as we've said before, music is subjective. We spoke a lot last week around how well the vocal harmonies in 
the Hot Chip album go together? In terms of Alexis Taylor's voice and Joe Goddard's voice, how they complement each other and how the harmonies work really well. I'm going to say this now. I do not think the same is true for Claxons. I don't like the vocal harmonies on this song, and there are others where I feel the same. It really grates with me, and I just could not penetrate that at all. I didn't like this in 2007. 15 years later, my opinion hasn't changed. I don't like this song. Okay. Can I posit a theory? Please do. When we spoke about Speak and Spell, Mm -hmm. and particularly... um... Boys say Essex! Boys say Essex! Now, I took against that immediately because of that. Uh Now, throughout... And Golden Scans, like, it does have a southern tinge to to the accents. Is it that you are taking again that? That's part of it. There are other songs later on where that is more prominent. That's not that's not all of it though. I I honestly I just I don't think either of them are particularly good singers. That's the main thing. And I think okay. I think the falsetto harmonies they just don't work for me and they are a distraction. They're not a hook. No, sorry. I can't get into this at all. Okay. Then we we do very much disagree on that. But as I admitted, either the hook gets you or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fair enough. Okay, we'll move on to Totem on the Timeline. Hmm. <laughs> See, I like this a lot more. <laughs> so I do I do like it. And it's got it's got quite a, a punky upbeat sound to it with some good hooks. It does feel as though it's like it's a little easy though. Do you know what I mean? Like what do you mean? I, I don't, I'm not sure I do know what you mean. No, sorry. So the the criticism that I would have of Claxons, um, possibly this more so than the songs that we've had thus far, is the one of the things that we lauded Hot Chip for was sonic complexity. Yeah. And there's loads of different things going on. Totem on the timeline, I found quite basic. Okay, I, I know what you mean. It is much more of a traditional punk song, I would say. You know, you've got jangling guitars, the rolling drum beat, the distorted bass. The whole thing bounces along at Mach 3, is what I've said. You know, So I was happy with that. It, well, and it's over in less than three minutes, which, grand. I like it. It's not by any stretch of the imagination an electronic piece of music at all. It's a, it's a punk song. The song itself is about boozy holidays and sexual promiscuity. I, I love the opening line. At Club 18 to 30, I met Julius Caesar, Lady Diana, and Mother Teresa. I think that's a really good line, actually. However, however, later in the song is where the lyrics start to lose me. Sarah Bella sitting on a totem timeline. It's all a bit, look how clever we are. We know about the anatomy of the brain and it's all very pink floyd no so it's not pink floyd you may disagree with this but i think that i may have considered what your main issue is is it's chris Gow lyrics yeah is it's faux intellectualism yeah absolutely right it is yeah and uh, which is why i said pink floyd no because <sighs> At some point, we will have to do Pink Floyd and we will have to have the chat about them. Listen, the... I like Pink Floyd. It took me a long time to get into them. A hell of a long time. It did. A hell of a long time. And it's this we're cleverer than you attitude that comes across here. And I still can't get into Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. I never will. I hate it. 
And whilst I don't hate this song, there's a similar ethos coming through. Look at us. We know about the anatomy of the human brain. Look at us. We've got all these literary references. Give a shit, mate. Sorry. I don't care. See, I'm okay, I'm okay with that, but okay. But it is. It is it's Seed's Corner lyrics. You're absolutely right. You've nailed it. Yeah. And listen, again, I like Toto on the timeline, but I start to have problems with the lyrics at this point in the album. <laughs> We've got we've got a way to go as well. <laughs> Fucking right we have, mate. Okay. So then we move on to as above, so below. So I think I think like the easiest way to move through these songs is firstly to just simply ask you, how are you doing, Tim? <laughs> how are you doing with this song? Um, I don't mind it. it. You know, it's a lot less frenetic than anything you've heard so far. It is a bit calmer. I'll give you that. It is. What I've said that guitar riff could be nicked from anything off the first two Coral albums. That's not a criticism per se. It's just you know, mm-hmm. it's it's really different to, to what I've heard on the on the first four. I do like the distorted, noisy freakout that comes in a couple of times. I like that. It's you know, it's a bit different. It's again, it's as we said with Hot Chip last week. It's eschewing that traditional song structure and trying to bring something different in. So fair enough. I don't mind this. I wouldn't say it's great, but I like it a lot more than Golden Scans. Probably not as much as Total in a Timeline, but it's fine. Yeah, so the note I made where the it's a perfectly good song that works. It works well. It retains my interest. I don't think it's the best song on the album. And I think, given certainly the supposed drug of choice of their fans... Certainly the first four are MDMA-influenced, we'll put it that yep. way. This is maybe the, the MDMA's worn off a wee touch. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's fair. This is what... So I said I said about Totem on the Timeline, the lyrics are giving me problems. I, this is one where it's a bit less grating. So the chorus. The dance of the cosmos shows, the stitches of space that slowly come and go, the dance of the cosmos shows as above so below so literally what is above i.e the cosmos has a macro micro relationship with what is below on the earth you know the elements are the same we're all made of the same we're all made of stardust this is one where the abstract and and metaphorical lyrics i quite like actually it works on this Mm -hmm. one for me yeah it's all right fine okay so we move on to isle of her I so Isle of Her is I love her. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got yeah. yeah, yeah. Really clever. I'm a bugger for a pun, but that's a shit pun. <laughs> well, it is. It is. Okay. Can I read my notes? Go on. Things I like about this song: the Gary Newman style synths, the bassline, the drumming. Things I don't like about this song: pretty much everything else. <laughs> the harmonies are irritating. The pretentious abstract lyrics are back. So, Cyclops grazing alone, facing mirrors that show the reflection his own face-to-face. What? Fuck off. And it's too fucking long. Yes. After two and a half minutes, I've had enough. And it, you, you think after two and a half minutes, it's done, it's finished. But then it just fucking comes back for another 90 seconds. Nah. And it's quite repetitive as well. It's, it is repetitive. <sighs> yeah, I don't like it at all. Sorry. No, I, I I completely agree with you. I was not a fan of it at all. I found it repetitive. It went on for too long. It's not great at all. Nope. 
And shit punning. Very shit punning. Like essentially, you lose points for shit punning. And I'm a, I'm a, as as you know, Kevin, I'm a big fan of a pun. Yeah, I like a pun, but I don't like a shit pun. Yeah, shit pun, shit song. Move on. Okay, so we move on to Gravity's Rainbow. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the bass work. I like the drumming. Well, the bass line and the drums had lifted from the Arctic Monkeys' first album, so of course you like. So it. that's why I'm fine with it. <laughs> What's with the fucking weird scratching effect on the guitars? Don't know. Has fucking DJ Lethal got an uncredited part on this track or something? (laughs) The vocal harmonies on this are like fingers down a chalkboard. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. I'm not leaving anything to the imagination here, guys, on where I'm going with which album I think's better, but they've lost me completely by now. (sighs) And there's another thing that's irritating me about this. Right, so Gravity's Rainbow, it takes its name from a 1973 novel by American writer Thomas Pynchon. And the term Gravity's Rainbow refers to the trajectory of a V2 rocket. Mm -hmm. And in a 2006 interview with Fact, Jamie Reynolds explained, tongue-in-cheek, he said that the song is about the trajectory of ejaculation. In the chorus, we sing, come with me, come with me. Nobody's picked up on that. Well, fine. Great. So your really clever thing that you've managed to sneak into your song is that your jizz shot has a parabola. (laughs) Nice. Exactly. And this, to come back to the lyrical content, this is why I've got a problem with it. Because it's trying to say we've got all these literary references crammed in. But then also trying to say, well, look at us where we can be silly and juvenile and like, sorry, lads, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. It's one thing or the other. No, because like I I fully embrace the, yeah, reference William Burroughs, reference uh, Alistair Crowley. I'm, I'm all right with that. And, like, and let's be clear, if people have listened to us before, they also know we're all right with being quite puerile and immature. Yeah. A lot of the time, to be honest with you. But for me, you cannot have it both at the same time. No, you can't. You can't, you can't like, go, <laughs> come with me. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, but this is really clever. <laughs> like, no, yeah. no, fuck off. Yeah. You don't get to do that shit. You don't get to do that shit. One last thing I would say about the lyrics. I do like the fact that he's saying that he'll steal someone from the year 4000. So he's clearly not satisfied without doing busted by a thousand years. But he also wants to time nap her lover, bring her back to a time two millennia before she was born. So this gives us an opportunity to discuss busted. (laughs) A sentence I never thought I'd hear you say. (laughs) No, but it does give us an opportunity because I'm not sure whether we'll get the opportunity again. So we come from the year 3000. Everything's the same, but we live underwater. (laughs) Specifically, the lyric is, not much has changed, but we live underwater. That seems like a fairly seismic change. So quite a lot has changed. Oh, yeah, and you're also, like, attempting to grind onto your girlfriend's great-great-great-granddaughter. I mean, what a sick perv you are. Yes, agreed. That is disgusting. 
But also, basically going forward a thousand years, and it's only her great, great, great... So there's only four generations. She might still be alive. Uh, no, but seriously, a thousand years. It's her entire family descended from that fucking knight at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like, are they all 250 years old? What the fuck is going on? No, it's, if you've read any science fiction, as soon as we transfer to eating food in pill form, <laughs> we will live forever. So, well, but surely we still age. So, so the, my point still stands. No. He's trying to grind no, on, a, on an, eld, an extremely elderly woman then, <laughs> which is... Even worse, surely. 250-year-old <laughs> woman's like, yeah, <laughs> come on, hello. <laughs> uh, oh, my Hello, goodness. ladies. <laughs> Again, as we said earlier, we are clearly okay with puerile juvenile toilet humour <laughs> when this situation arises. <laughs> uh, I don't like Gravity's Rainbow. It's annoying. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Forgotten Works which has a bit more of a moody vibe than we've had before. I like the bass line in this, and it really drives the whole song. So I do quite like this, I have to say, but it's because of that bass line. Without it, like the song has nothing much to write home about. So I'll go a little further. I like the bass line. I think the rhythm is quite funky, and I think the synths are quite atmospheric. And I used well on this track. I think structurally, I'm getting a little bit worn out by the quiet verse, loud chorus structure by this point in the album. It is a loud album. Yeah, it is. It's another one that's just, it's brought crashing down by the vocals. I'm really sorry. To your point earlier, and to what we said a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago on Depeche Mode, I don't want to sound like I'm deliberately targeting people with southeastern accents. And I know that there'll be plenty of people that can't stand the way I talk with my quasi-Midlands-affected Scouse accent, because my own family gets irritated by it, so fine, okay. But God almighty, the way that they sing on this song... it makes my skin crawl. I'm sorry it does. I, I hate it. I, I hate it. I, I'm sorry. I don't have anything to say about this. I Yeah, I like it musically, but I can't get past the vocals. No, well, the, the simple fact is, is if you don't like someone's vocal performance, mm-hmm. then unless it's an instrumental, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get past it. It's a personal taste thing. I don't find their voices as irritating as you do, but I can understand where you're coming from. No, fair enough. So we move on to Magic. It was released as a single. It reached number 29 in the UK singles chart. And the track itself references Alistair Crowley, uh, citing parts of spells written by him and other related matters, such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And I think this might amuse you, Tim. The song is also part of the soundtrack of the third season of the British television series, Skins. Of course it is. (laughs) So what I will say is I think the drumming on this is absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's it's brilliant. So the drumming is performed by James Ford, who produces the album. Uh, uh, so James Ford is from Simeon Mobile Disco, another act that I quite like, and who also would have made a good accompaniment to Hot Chip on an album clash. But hey, who am I? It's your choice. <laughs> Drumming's great. I like the bass line. I think the very start of this really piques my interest. It's interesting. But then as soon as that whining backing vocal comes in, I'm lost. I'm gone. It's beyond irritating by this point. And the note I've written here, and it comes back to what you said about Forgotten Works a second ago. If this album were a series of instrumentals, I genuinely think I would be much fonder of it than I am. Because musically, there are things to appreciate on most of the tracks, and this is one. But again, the vocal performance, it just takes away all my enjoyment. I'm really, really sorry. I also think, and I'm sorry, I know you want to get a word in. I also think by this point, things are starting to sound very formulaic. And to be brutally honest, the first time I listened to the album through, I struggle to differentiate this from Atlantis to Interzone. Oh yeah, I can I can definitely see that. So I agree with you that it's got a really exciting opening. But well, in fact, I'll agree with you on this one. And we have disagreed on elements of this album. I think the drumming, as you say, is really good. But you've grabbed me with a really exciting introduction, and then you yep. don't sustain it. And that's yep. a problem for me. This should be a much better song than it than it actually is. That introduction is really great, and I'm not I'm not as again the lyrical performance as you are, but it sets up what could be an, an absolute belter, and it doesn't follow through, and that's that's problematic. It is problematic, and not only does it not follow through, but it's really quick to take all the wind out of its own sails. You got you got ten seconds of mm-hmm. oh god, this is going to be interesting. Oh no, do you know what I mean? It, it... Yeah, yeah, it's like it loses you very quickly, yeah. and it's a shame because the the drumming deserves better. Okay, uh, I've got nothing else to say about magic. No, so we go on to the penultimate track of the album, the cover. And it was very successful of the song Not Over Yet by Grace, which uh, written by Paul Oakenfold, amongst yep. others. And produced by Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne, who we spoke about before. The originals are Belter. Um, and it's a fairly hard, hard one to fuck up, really. It's the uh, fifth release from the album. It peaked at number 13 in the UK singles chart. So I will then pass over to my colleague because I don't think you're a fan. (laughs) I had to bite my tongue when you said it's a fairly hard one to fuck up because they fucking managed to fuck it up. Listen, I've held back until now and I have held back until now. I fucking hate this. I hated this in 2007. I hate it now. We've spoken before. I am a huge fan of Perfecto, Paul Oakenfold, Steve Osborne, of the stuff they've done, the remixes they produce, the dance tracks they produce. I love Not Over Yet. I think it's a fucking great tune. It's brilliant. This rips all the balls out of that tune. 
How the fuck they managed to stretch this out to four minutes and still have it sound like it goes on for about 20. I've got no fucking idea. It's absolutely dreadful. I hate this with every fibre of my being. This is one of the worst songs we've gone through yet on Album Clash. Listen, every time I listen to the album, as soon as the album had finished, I had to go and listen to the original just to cleanse my ears. I detest this. Always have. Always will. So... I do not feel the same as you. Ah, that's because you're a fucking shitbag. <laughs> I will caveat what I'm going to say by stating that the original is far superior. We we take that as a given. I, I don't mind it. The criteria I have always given to a cover version is that I think you need to do something interesting um, or different with it. I don't think they do. But I am not as viscerally angered by it as you. It's fine, but what I, w- what I certainly will say is that with a song that's an absolute belter, you've not done anything particularly interesting with it, and that's my problem. So I do not mean what I'm about to say in a way to denigrate you, but is perhaps the reason you are not as vehemently and viscerally opposed to this as I am because when the original came out in 95 you were not the sort of person that would have responded to it at that time whereas I fucking loved this in 95 it was fucking great and as you said before at that time you were very much in your indie phase and so by the time 2007 rolls around you didn't have the fondness for this uh, as I did is that is that unfair no no like that's entirely plausible so if they had done I don't know a cover of um as or um or superstition or you know any number of Stevie Wonder tunes then I might have been absolutely fuming to be clear, I'm not saying that Grace is not over yet. Is is the uh, musical equivalent of Stevie Wonder's superstition? <laughs> <laughs> but I understand your point. Yeah, like you know, it's superstition, as you know, is like if you if you want to talk about like sort of building blocks of my sort of musical interest, then that certainly is a foundation stone. This may well be close to that for you, and I don't have the same relationship with it. So, yeah, it's entirely plausible that if I did have that relationship with it, then I would be a lot more angry (laughs) about it. My issue, as I say, with it is that you could do a lot more and you don't. Yeah, that is very fair. I I agree with that. Uh, Can we not talk about this song anymore, please? Okay, so we will finish with Four Horsemen of 2012. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, this is what I've written, and this is in quotation marks. Hey guys, imagine if we tried to make a dubstep-style rock song, but just end up sounding like a bad rip-off of Enter Shikari, who were already wank to start with. At least that's how I imagine the conversation in the studio went, because I can't fucking think of what else they were trying to do with this. Um, would you like to hear my verbatim note? Please. This is fucking shite. It's dreadful. <laughs> no, that like that's my entire note. <laughs> so the title obviously refers to the Mayan prophecy that the world was going to end on the 21st of December 2012. And... Fortunately, um, John Cusack saved us. 
<laughs> well, no. Unfortunately, John Cusack saved us. Because if he hadn't, then I wouldn't have had to listen to this fucking album to research this clash. And particularly, I wouldn't have had to listen to this fucking dirge. It's terrible. It is. Again, I can't fault the drumming. No, they've got a good drummer. But he's not their drummer. He's from, he's from another band who are much better. And electronic, again, just saying. No, but I'm I'm glad we did this album because like it's been a while since we did one that one of us really took against, oh, yeah. and you really fucking took against this. Yeah, I have. Um, so the album doesn't quite end there, though. There is an untitled uh, secret track to go back to our rant from last week about secret tracks. This one we have fifteen plus minutes of silence before a, a secret track comes in. Uh, have you listened to the secret track? No, like, so on the digital version that I have listened to prior to this, it did not give me the option to listen to the hidden track. The hidden track is two minutes of electronic experimental noises. And in that is more interesting than virtually anything else we've heard so far, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, some quite interesting stuff there I'm thinking why don't you just fucking do some more of this expand on this and see where you go with it um, but yeah big, you're a big fan of Claxons uh, aren't you no <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I, I can remember when um, We Are The Night was released by the Chemical Brothers and you were absolutely fucking fuming that the Claxons managed to um, wheedle their way onto it which was um all rights reversed. Yeah. Now, I really like We Are The Night as an album. I fucking hate that tune. <laughs> I really like All Rights Reversed. See, this is the thing. You don't... You just do not like Claxons. I don't. I, so I'm I'm really glad that you chose these two albums to clash because it allowed me to go back and revisit an album that I hadn't loved when I first heard it and to see if my opinion had changed. And it allowed me to listen to an album that I'd avoided listening to because I didn't like what I'd heard, and to see if my preconceptions were misguided. So I'm really glad you chose it, even though there are so many more obvious clashes that I'd have enjoyed a lot more. But anyway... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. From that, let's go into uh, reviews and then ultimately legacy. Yeah. So in terms of reviews, I mean, at the time, they were breathless and lauding this band as the the future. So the enemy, and we have said a lot about the enemy during this uh, recording, but the enemy went big (laughs) on um, Claxons. So Alex Miller's review. Uh, Today, this country is blessed with many poets of the mundane, from Arctic monkeys to the view to the twang, but Claxons are different. Self-styled prophets of the insane, magic, the cyclops, ecstasy, Buzz Aldrin, sunken cities, hypnosis, Alistair Crowley, unicorns, and time travel. These are the things that which concern this record. I've got more from that review. May I read? Yeah, sure. Okay. 
New Rave, the plaything of a group of East London art kids, a multi-tentacled neon revolution, a rebirth of punk flying alongside the soul of dance music and under the influence of lost weekends on interstellar ketamine terror cruises. And you know what else? It's a fucking albatross around the neck of the most thrilling and visionary band Britain has had in more than a decade. Claxons? They're just a bunch of New Rave scenesters, right? Wrong. No, not wrong. When New Rave's legacy has become little more than a serotonin drought in the brains of its disciples, Mists of the Near Future will remain one of the most dynamic, intense and totally lunatic pop records of the early 21st century. Come back to me in 15 years, pal, and see if you're right. <laughs> I'm going to go on. Unlike This Is It, the roots of Mists of the Near Future do not stem from the polluted grace of 21st century city, nor are they in the day-glow bedsits, designer drugs and guestless raves of Shoreditch. Not so sure I agree with that. They're in the pages of Pop's eccentric history, from which it both burns and borrows. This is no Blitzkrieg dance record, but a debut album of astonishing variety of focus. A technicolor car crash of the mythological and the space-aged, it's a unique, disorientating manifesto for the future of music, rammed with a millennia's worth of ideas. Fucking hell. So I said last week that the review of The Warning was not the most enemy review I was going to read. And have you ever heard a more enemy review than that? I don't Jesus I don't think I have. Christ. Like and I I've read the review that they did for uh, the Libertines. So, you know, I'm going to read a review from recently. So Lisa Wright in DIY magazine. <laughs> She worked for home base. <laughs> <laughs> so after Claxons had bust open New Rave's door, a rabble of bands followed CSS, New Young Pony Club, Later the Pier, Shit Disco, Hadouken, almost all of whom either imploded after their debut or struggled to follow its success, Claxons included. But for a brief period, they encapsulated a wide-eyed, curious, uninhibited antidote to the lad rock resurgence of the enemy, the view, et al. that was happening around them. And ten years on, myths of the near future is still as brilliantly bonkers as it was on the first listen. But there were some naysayers outside of the UK music bubble. Bubble, yeah. So the Rolling Stone. So I, I quote from Rob Sheffield's review. On the sliding scale of terrible ideas, a UK new rave scene rates somewhere between cat juggling and Studio 60. Until now, the best case you can make for old school Manchester era rave was at least it didn't have any revival potential. But the Claxons have made a bold entrance with the club hit Atlantis to Interzone, dressing up in fluorescent wizard robes to chant horses want to dance but find their wings are damaged. On myths, they expand their suspiciously indie-ish rock riffs with tales of centaurs, four horsemen of 2012, and cyclopses, I love her. Glow sticks or go, or not. So, whilst I don't approve of his early 90s rave-era bashing policy... Or his Studio 60, because, like, like, I will I will stand up for it, that. It was good. For that series. Like, I know it got cancelled. It was decent. It was decent, I agree. However, I do approve of his Claxon's killing policy. (laughs) (laughs) And thus completes, quite belatedly, our customary Simpsons reference. (laughs) Okay, is it Nobby time? I think it's Nobby time. All right, so no words from Nobby this week. He did not write a written review of this album. However, he did rate it as a dud 
meaning he thought it was a bad record whose details rarely merit further thought. At the upper level, it may be merely overrated, disappointing or dull. Down below, it may be contemptible. I mean, all I'll say to that is even a stop clock and all that. (laughs) (laughs) I've got nothing else from reviews. You? No. um, So I suppose I should go on to Legacy. Hmm. As as we have said, this album was phenomenally successful and there was quite the buzz around the band and they did sort of various kind of appearances over the course of the next three years between 2008 and 2011. So they appeared with Rihanna at the Brit Awards, didn't they? Yeah, you know, like they, they, were, they were huge at the time. The second album, Surfing the Void, was released in uh, August 2010, and it certainly did not do what the opening album had done. It sold 30,000 copies in the in the UK and led to them being dropped by Universal Polydor. And, you know, they, they'd been very clear that this was a trilogy of albums. So the final album was Love Frequency, which... Um, was released on 16th of June 2014, entered the UK charts at 38. Tom Rowlands of the Chemical Brothers produced some of the singles on there. But again, they very much, their first album, they flamed out. By the point of Love Frequency, nobody gave a shit. And so the band has not officially split up, but since 2014, they have been on hiatus and I would probably envisage that that would be the case until the point that we get the early 2000s revival tours that, that kind of go on. Like we're currently sort of living through that with 80s and 90s in the minute. At some point, well, as soon as that generation hits 30, that's going to start up and possibly Claxons may re-emerge. Oy, let's hope not. So yeah, they in October 2014... They announced on their Facebook page. I mean, it's a shame it wasn't their MySpace page, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 2014's well too late for MySpace. Yeah, that's true. Do you know, I I never ever went on anyone's MySpace page, much less created one of my own. I never ever visited MySpace. I was, it was, as I said before, it was a social media craze that I was both too young and too old for (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) Right. So they said. After what's been nearly nine bananas years, we'd like to let you know that we've decided the upcoming dates in the UK, Europe, Japan and Mexico will be our last headline tour. Incidentally, that tour was also billed as the world's first ever 3D printed tour, with everything from instruments to lights created with 3D printers. But I am assuming that was almost certainly bollocks. So yeah, they played their last ever show, or to date, their last ever show in Mexico City in January 2015. And as you said, they've been on deficit hiatus since. Don't hurry back, lads. Big fun. <laughs> okay, so this is going to sound harsh, because it is harsh. I think the real legacy of this album is that there isn't a legacy of this album. I'm going to come back to the enemy review, which talks about how this album will be regarded in X years' time. I think they're actually just another footnote in the history of the hype machine of the music media. You know, everyone hitching their wagon to the klaxons because they're the latest cool thing and then ramming it down everyone's throats until the public grows sick of it and we all decide to move on. That's 
That's how I saw the Claxons at the time, and nothing that's happened in the intervening 15 years has done anything to change my mind. In fact, quite the opposite. It's just reaffirmed that for you. So I don't actually think that your point is wrong whilst you've characterised it in your inimitable way. Essentially, this is the dog end, the fag end of the how influential the enemy Q yes those those sorts of publications could be after this the the music industry becomes so disparate becomes so hard to kind of nail down that those magazines stopped having that level of influence and to the point where that the, obviously the enemy is no longer a an ongoing concern really well the so the enemy still exists online um, not in print. Q doesn't exist at all anymore. But I'll go further than that. I don't think it's just music journalism. I think this is the hot chip called it, as we referred to last week. This was a time of seismic shift in the music industry. And at the back end of the 2000s, they're finally cottoning on to the fact that physical sales are not where it's at anymore. And actually, that the record companies have far less power and so gone are the days where the A&R machine can create a phenomenon in the way that they did with bands like Claxons and several others before them. So maybe this is the last vestiges of the magazines, music newspapers as tastemakers that the public became mm-hmm. their own tastemaker after this through technology, yeah. through the changes that that occurred. I agree with you. And I think this is one of the good things that social media has done, actually. And there are very few good things that social media has done. But this is one of them in that it has allowed content creators. And I don't include us in that, by the way. (laughs) I mean, people with actual (laughs) talent. To self-promote and to use social media to get their art out to the world. So, and we've had this debate before, and we will have this debate again. The advantage and disadvantage of that is that, yes, the advantage of that is that it democratizes the platform for everyone. Theoretically, if you're just starting out, then you can promote your single as well as a long established artist. However, one of the huge disadvantages that we have is that it's much harder for people to break through because if you're not an established name, then how do you get through the various levels of noise and algorithms that direct you to something else? I mean, as you know, literally the, as, as we've discussed through this clash, through an algorithm or through the various social medias that I subscribe to, I've come across an album from seven years ago that is about Skelmersdale, (laughs) (laughs) which is a good thing. However, the disadvantage of that is that it's very easy to miss other things that are going on because everything is available at the same time. Yeah, you're right. And and I, I... We could debate this for hours, as you've said. In fact, to pull back the curtain slightly, we have debated this on a recording before. Yes, we have. I had to delete the whole thing because that particular show had run to over two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to get rid. We're not going to answer it. I'm not sure there is an answer to it. But then all I would say to that is, 
I don't know how that's that different from what went on before because it was always 99% chance. If Alan McGee hadn't have missed his train and gone to King Tut's Wawa hut that night, then Oasis never gets signed. And there's countless examples where that is the case for other acts. So it's just a different medium where that is occurring now, I guess. Okay. So as we're never going to resolve, <laughs> resolve that, let's go on to uh, best song, worst song. All right. So I'm going to go my worst song first because it's easy. I don't need to think about it. There's a lot to choose from on this album. As you'll have guessed, I'm not a fan. But the worst song is by far not over yet. Just fuck off. <laughs> I'm not going to critique it any more than that. Best song, Slim Pickings. <laughs> Part of me is tempted to pick Untitled. <laughs> You're not allowed to pick But that. even I'm not that contrary. <laughs> I quite like Totem on the Timeline. As Above, So Below has some interesting things in it. But Two Receivers is probably the best track for me on this album. I think the album does start very promisingly. It just it tails off very, very quickly. So yeah, I'll go Two Receivers as my best track. Where are you coming down? Okay, so worst track um, is Isle of Her. Shit pun. It's really repetitive. Goes on for fucking ever. It's not great at all. Best track is the opener. It's really exciting. It's urgent. It's everything that you think klaxons are. No, it ain't. <laughs> it's absolutely not because I like it. <laughs> no, well, that, that's the thing. Is that it's everything you were told klaxons were. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 really good. It like got me really excited when I um, started listening to the album. So yeah, it's the best song on the album. Okay, so that's best song, worst song out of the way. I guess it's time that we score these two albums. I mean, I don't think there's much <laughs> suspense over which is going to win, certainly from me anyway. But it's your pick, so you go first on Hot Chip. Over you go. So, The Warning. It's a really interesting album. There's a lot going on in it. The first six songs are great and there's there's so much different things going on even the tracks that i don't enjoy there's something of interest there's something to grab me there's something that that i can go i don't particularly like it but i'm intrigued by it so the the whole album as it as a piece works really well and it ends if i ignore the hidden track like i think the ending is brilliant as well there's some elements I don't like about it, but it's really good. So I'm going to come down with a seven and a half out of ten. Okay. So the warning, as I said early on in last week's show, when we did, how did I discover the album? When I first heard the warning, I wasn't a great fan. So I was really glad, as I said, of the of the chance to revisit this album to see if it was due a reappraisal, and it very much is due a reappraisal in terms of my initial reaction. I think. This album displays a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, a lot of vision, actually, in terms of combining really strong electronic influences with traditional instrumentation. And we talked about how good the use of percussion was on most of the tracks. 
And with that, not abiding by traditional views of song structure, but still creating some great pop songs and some absolutely beautiful songs as well within that. There's some really, really moving pieces of music on that album. So yeah, actually, my initial view from 2006, I disagree with. I am a real fan of The Warning. And I'm actually going to go slightly better than you. I think this is deserving of an 8 out of 10. I really, really like it. So I'm giving it 8. Okay, fair enough. So. (laughs) I mean, clearly through when we've been going through the album, you're a big fan of Claxons (laughs) and this album. So um, I'm expecting big scores here. Okay, so I'm going to try and say... Something constructive, at least. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be kind, but it's going to be constructive. I think this album thinks it's something it isn't. I think this album thinks it's subversive. I think this album thinks it is undercutting the industry and it is reshaping pop music into something new. Now, history has proven that to be an utter fallacy. But not just history, the band themselves proved it to be a fallacy. It's, it is in no way subversive. They openly talked about wanting to sell a million records for starters and wanting to work with Stock Aitken and Waterman. So, no, I'm not having that at all. I, I spoke about Pink Floyd earlier on and how for a long time I struggled to get into Pink Floyd and the barrier was that we're cleverer than you. Well, this is that in spades. I'm sorry, but just because you've got literary references in each of your songs, it doesn't mean you're clever. It doesn't mean your music is inherently more meaningful than anything else. It just means you've read a load of books. And fuck off, frankly. You just come across as pretentious. There are things I like. I do like the opening track. I do like Toto on the Timeline. And I think of As Above, So Below has got some interesting stuff in there. So it's not a complete disaster, okay? But in all three of those tracks, there are things I have reservations about. And so... Alright, the gloves are off. I hate this. I hate the Claxons. As a whole, I hate the album. And so I was going to get my worst ever score. Four out of ten. Wow. Really hate it. I'm guessing you're going higher, but where are you going? Okay. So I ain't going to win. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot that you say that I can agree with and elements that I don't necessarily agree with that I can certainly sympathise with. I am a little more favourable towards the album, but I do agree with you that there is a intellectual snobbery about the album that isn't borne out by the content. I think there are more high points than you do. I certainly think that the opening track is is really, really good and really affecting as well. Like, I've returned to it a couple of times, but it's patchy as fuck. And I can't remember what my lowest score is, but I think this may well reach my nadir as well. So I'm not going as low as you but I'm going a five and a half. So it's not your lowest score. You gave Beer Here Now a four. And I still stand by that. 
And the thing is, I gave Be Here Now five. So, so, Be Here Now is still the worst album we've reviewed. Quite rightly. <laughs> no, sorry, Kev. This is this is not as good as Be Here Now. <laughs> no, because Noel needs to learn. <laughs> no, Noel didn't like the Claxons, and actually, therefore, he's gone no. up in my estimation. Still a dick. <laughs> Okay, five and a half. So, so I didn't. So that means fifteen and a half is the score that we've given to the warning, and nine and a half is the score that we've given to myths of the near future. I think that might be our biggest ever margin of victory. It's an oh, absolute yeah. drubbing. Easily six points. So, congratulations, Hot Chip. You have won Album Clash. It was no contest, really. I could have told you that when Kev announced it, but anyway. Well, I I wanted to see, because I knew how your antipathy towards him, I wanted to see whether... I mean, I think it's far beyond antipathy, Kev. (laughs) Well, certainly, like I wanted to see whether it was justified and whether you had changed your opinion. You haven't. I I have changed my opinion of one of these albums, (laughs) but not the classics. (laughs) <laughs> right so where are we going next so we we're gonna decide if we're gonna do another couple of these uh electronica season clashes and particularly because i don't want to finish electronica season with an album which is demonstrably not electronica and therefore <laughs> fails entirely to meet the brief so there you go uh, and you said that you wanted to drag the pod into the 21st century well i'm going to rail against that and i'm going to bring it back safely to our port of calm and tranquility that is the 1990s <laughs> <laughs> and i'm gonna pick two albums which are very different to one another uh, sonically but which do have a close link and it's really interesting actually that you've picked the claxons album for the second half of this clash uh, and I was going to do this anyway, but it's a really nice kind of flow because having been forced to listen to something which pretends to be subversive, for next week's show, we are going to go through something which actually was subversive. And in our next clash, we are going to go through... We're going to go to 1991, two albums that were released a month apart, and we're going to do The White Room by the KLF... I absolutely (laughs) knew that's where you were going. And in two weeks' time, Kev, I'd like you to take us through Adventures Beyond the Ultra World by The Orb. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, so back to the 90s, and we're starting with the KLF, then we're going on to The Orb. Yeah, there we go. Very intrigued. So, um, yeah, just to let people know, the, uh, The White Room, well, as you may know, and as we'll certainly get into next week, uh, it's only in the last year or so that the KLF have, have made any of their stuff available on streaming sites. The White Room can be a little difficult to find in its original form. It is there, but it just might be a little bit difficult to find. What we'll do, there's actually a YouTube video, which is the whole album to that to finish. We'll tweet that out. So if you can't find it on whichever streaming platform you use, it's there. So you can you can listen to that. And full disclosure... The Orb album, it's long. It's comfortably the longest album that we've ever done on Album Clash. And, well, it's an ambient electronica album, so strap in. (laughs) I don't know. I've never listened to the album before, so... Well, 
you know my opinion on long stuff, so... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We shall see. (laughs) But yes, that will be our next clash. In the meantime, though, Kev, how might people keep in touch with what we're doing on the socials? So, in the week that we recorded, um, the great British comedian Barry Cryer died. Mm. And rather than, you know, do my usual sort of pithy line about something in the news, I'm just going to tell a Barry Cryer joke because he was great. And if you do get an opportunity to check out his stuff, then you should because he was a really, really funny man. Yes, he was. So, this is the joke. A man is in the front room and his wife is in the kitchen. She says, smoke salmon or chicken? He says... Oh, love. Smoked salmon, definitely. She says, you're having soup, fatty. I was talking to the cat. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) And that sums Barry Cryer up perfectly. Yes, much missed. And a, a very, very good tribute to him there. Well done. And there are some lovely tributes to him on Twitter. Amazingly, for once, Twitter was not a hateful place. Well, not entirely a hateful place anyway. (laughs) Well, not entirely. Like, the tributes to him were nice. Mm. Um, If you like carefully curated uh, Norman Cook-approved quality content, then you can check out our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can always go to our email. Send it to albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. Thank you very, very much. Uh, as I always say, please get involved. Head over to Insta. I mean, Norman likes it, so, you know, why don't you? Uh, let us know what clashes you want us to do. Send us your feedback. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Hit that all-important subscribe button. Just a reminder, next week, I am going to be going through the KLF's The White Room. And in a fortnight's time, Kev, you're going to take us through... The Orbs Adventures Beyond Ultra World. Brilliant. I am looking forward to that. But until then, I have been Tim. I have been Kev. I will see you next time. Take care. ta Cheers. Same bad place, same bad time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> or as we discussed, it's whichever bad place and time they choose. If that's literally the concept. <laughs> it's up to them, up to us. <laughs> Anyway, goodbye everyone. Ta-da. <laughs> 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 <laughs>